Well, hello again. You're all still here, that's a good sign. Um, if you're visiting with us today, uh, either because we've had a baptism service or, or otherwise, you're very welcome. Uh, it is our habit in our church, to, oh, I need that, it is our habit in our church to um, to try and work through uh, parts of the Bible week by week. And in our church at the moment, we're working through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and we've reached a part in chapter 5 where Jesus himself preaches a sermon. And historically, this has been quite a famous part of the Bible. It, it's known in history as the Sermon on the Mount, if you've ever heard of that. And in our Bibles, it lasts for three chapters. It begins in verse 1 of chapter 5 goes all the way through chapter 6 and chapter 7 and by chapter 7 it says that the crowds were amazed at the teaching of Jesus because he taught as one who had authority not like the teaching they'd been used to um, whatever that was so three chapters it's amazing to have a sermon of Jesus himself the son of God Jesus originally preached this sermon to his close disciples but with many other people eavesdropping as well um, as we, by the end, Matthew tells us that the crowds were astonished at his authority. So in other words, Jesus here in this sermon is speaking both to his committed followers who love him and know him and want to follow him as his disciples and at the same time to curious inquirers who are kind of, I, I, I want to get a load of what this guy's saying. Jesus is speaking to the committed and the curious at the same time and, and impacting them all in different ways. Last week, um, we did an introduction to the whole sermon. And it's hard for me this because it's really tempting to go over it all again as a prelude to today's talk. But we'd be here for twice as long as we were here last week if we did that. If you missed that talk... Uh, all of our talks are available to listen to online on our website. But just let me say this. I, I've literally got like one paragraph as a summary. This is not an ordinary sermon because Jesus is not just a great teacher who had some nice ideas about morals. Matthew in his gospel is aiming to show us that Jesus Christ has not come primarily to give us his advice. He's come, rather, as the promised king to actually save people from their sins and lift them into a completely new kind of life. So the first thing we said last week was that this sermon is not a kind of entrance exam into Christianity. Jesus isn't saying, live like this and then you can be on my team. But rather, it is really a dynamic description of what Jesus' team looks like. Jesus here, we called it the King's Manifesto. This is Jesus saying, if you want to know what my kingdom looks like, this is it. If you want to know what my people look like, or should look like, this is it. That is what this sermon is all about. Jesus is telling us that where he rules in people's hearts as king where people love him and follow him as their king there is light and life and power and hope rather than darkness and death and weakness and despair so that, that's it as a recap for last week if you want more than that you'll have to have a listen we don't have long now 
because we've already had the baptism of part of our service. So we've just got a brief time. I have a simple job this afternoon, and that is really to give you an overview of how this sermon breaks down. When you've got three chapters all together with all kinds of detail, I think it's helpful to stand back and get the big picture. And then when we get into the detail, we can see how it fits together. I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus only has three main points in this sermon. I remember once preaching on a Christmas day and a lady came to our church as a visitor. She was a preacher in the local Methodist circuit, so some of you might even know who I'm talking about. I won't say any names. And she said to me, I'm very glad this morning you have three points. All good preachers have three points. Well, I'm pleased to inform her and you that I think Jesus here actually has three main broad themes. There's lots of things that hang off that. And uh, so there we are. I want to begin with an illustration, though. And I hope you, I hope this will help things come alive. For uh, I hope this sounds like it sounds in my head as well. Um, sometimes we do try things and they bomb. When I was a younger man, a long time ago... I used to work as an engineer in a coal mine. Some of you know that. When I first came to Rotherham, I was only I was 18 years old. Came over the Pennines with my passport from a little place called Wigan, and the Brit- British coal, as it was then, sent me to work at Maltby Colliery. I was going to say it's just up the road. It's not just up the road anymore because it shut last year, which I found very sad. But I was sent as an 18-year-old young lad to work to begin my engineering training at Maltby Colliery. Now, you will know that most coal mines have two separate shafts that go underground. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I mean, this was my bread and butter once. The reason that there's two shafts is that all the fresh air goes down one of the shafts and then goes all the way around the coal mine workings and comes up the dirty shaft. And the other reason there's two shafts is that all the miners go down the clean air shaft and all the coal that they mine goes along conveyor belts and comes up the dirty shaft. So there's a method in that madness. There's always two shafts in a coal mine. One of the um, things about uh, these shafts, as you can imagine, is they work a little bit like a lift so I've got a little picture that I drew. Uh, you might have to move it on, Andrew, because I'm not sure if I'm good enough. At it. There you go. I drew a very simple little drawing, as if I was on Blue Peter, of a of a mine. This is a mine shaft. It's not drawn to scale. The shaft at Maltby was over a thousand meters deep. So if I drew it properly, it would be really long and thin. So this is a bit short and fat. But what I'm showing you is the workings of a shaft. There were always two lifts attached on ropes, and there was always one at the bottom and one at the top. And we used to call these lifts cages because they were just like a big metal box, really, attached to a rope. In actual fact, in Maltby, there were three decks. So when at the beginning of the shift, you, the hundreds of men could go down the pit at the same time, all on three levels all the way down to the bottom, all talking to each other through the decks and all the banter that goes on. And the guys coming off the other shift would be coming up at the same time and pass them halfway. 
There's obviously a big engine that drives these cages. And when one travels up, the other one goes down, and they always pass each other halfway. Now, one of my favourite jobs, even as a youngster, was to go down the shaft, not inside the cage, but on top of the cage. So the, 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 the banksman would lower the cage down so you could walk onto the roof, attach yourself to the rope with a harness, and the idea was that you'd then go down the shaft very, very slowly to check that there was nothing wrong with the shaft wall. Maltby shaft was sunk in 1910, so it was brick-lined. And all the way down, there were gutters collecting the rainwater. So our job was to go down the mine on top of the cage, checking that nothing was missing or broken or any gutters were hanging off. And the, the interesting bit, obviously, was when you got halfway down, you had to make sure you didn't lean over too much because the other cage was coming up the other side and you don't want to... Well, I'll leave that to your imagination. Um, I'll let you into a little secret as well. This has got nothing to do with my talk on Matthew, by the way, this part, but I'll let you into a little secret. The two shafts at Maltby were quite close to each other and about halfway down the shaft, there was a little hole in the wall, in the shaft wall, and the shaft and the cage would stop, and you could climb out and go through the little hole. And between the two shafts, there was an underground lake, halfway down, 500 meters down, that collected all the rainwater so they could use it if there was any fires underground. And, the, and you could get off number one shaft, climb through the hole, and there was a little raft. And you could actually sail across this little lake to the other shaft and come up the other shaft. I mean, it's like Doctor Who, that, isn't it? Go down one shaft and ten minutes later come up the other one. How do you do that? So if people didn't know this lake was there, that was a nice magic trick that you could do sometimes. I'm sure someone did that to me once when I first started. But it was fun. It's only about four feet high, but to sail across that little lake, you pay good money for that on holiday in a cave somewhere. Anyway, it, that's irrelevant. Here's my picture of the shaft with the two cages, one at the top, one at the bottom. Why on earth am I telling you about Maltby Colliery? I, I think that this is a great picture of the Sermon on the Mount. And here's why. Let, let's say, let's pretend for a minute that in the cage at the top are all the people who think in their hearts that they are right with God based on their own abilities to keep and obey God's moral law. These people, in other words, are essentially confident in themselves. I am a good person. I can do it. In the end, God will be pleased with my life. These are the people in the upper cage on the left. Just move it on a slide. Trust in myself. There you go. It's, it's simple, isn't it? I, I couldn't fit more words than that in that cage. Um, in the cage at the bottom, on the other hand, are all the people who know something different. That they're not right with God based on their own merits. And these people in the bottom cage are people who instead of trusting in themselves and their own goodness are trusting in Jesus Christ 
and his goodness. In other words, they're not confident in themselves, but they are confident in him. He is their ultimate saviour. Now, here's the thing, and this is why I think this reflects the Sermon on the Mount. We might say that the engine that drives these cages up and down is, this is a a parable, a, a metaphor. We might say that that engine is like the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to preach in the world. We call it gospel because the word gospel is an old English word that means good news. And the gospel is amazing. Jesus, Matthew tells us, is coming into the world on a rescue mission. But this is very interesting because as this gospel engine turns, it always does two things at the same time. This is what I want you to get. First of all, as the gospel goes out into the world, it will always lift up and encourage those who are trusting in Jesus. They're going up. But at the very same time, it will lower those who are trusting in themselves. So, in other words, all the needy, broken, failing, guilty ones in the bottom cage, who don't trust themselves but trust Jesus, actually make it to the top. And all the ones who are trusting in themselves and think that they're right, actually end up at the bottom. These people are on the way up, and all the way up, they're actually, they're, they're kind of, even reason for being is to praise God for his goodness and kindness to them that they know they don't deserve. These guys on the left are going down the whole while, shaking their fist at God, saying, how very dare you? How dare you? Call into question my morality. One of them is praising God, and the other one going down all the while is angry with him. Later on in the Bible, there's the amazing story of a man who was in the upper cage. He was one of the most religiously moral men you could ever have hoped to meet. And he hated Jesus. He was what we might call today a self-righteous man. One day, he tells the story himself several times in the New Testament. On the road to the city of Damascus in modern-day Syria, he was actually on that road with a letter from the high priest to go and round up Christians to put them in prison. And on that Damascus road, he met the risen Jesus. And his life was completely transformed we might say, on the base of this illustration, that he swapped cages. Instead of thinking that he was in the top cage, he suddenly begins to realise that all his religious zeal had only served to make him proud and hard and superior, and he was actually in the bottom cage all the while. The difference now was that he had Jesus. Let me read to you something that he wrote later in the New Testament. He's writing to a church in modern day Greece. His his name was Paul. This is what he said, talking about his life. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost everything. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having a righteousness which is through faith in Christ. He actually became a preacher himself. Not to show off his own goodness, but he was constantly telling people that Jesus is the hero in the story and you better get on to the bottom cage so that he can take you up. That was his message. Do you know how he described his own preaching to people in the first century? He said this, when we preach this amazing good news to people, to the one... We're like the smell of death. And to the other, we're like the fragrance of life. In other words, every time I tell people about Jesus, it always offends the people who think they don't need him and delights the people who know that they do. As the gospel engine turns, some people go, I'm not having that. And other people go, thanks for coming, mate. I've never heard anything so good in all my life. The gospel engine does both things at the same time. Can I just deal with another thought at this point? Just to bring this a little bit more up to date. I've used a lot of religious language here. And I think there could be those who are here today or who hear this online. And think, that makes sense to me. It makes a lot of sense that in what you've just said, but I, I don't believe it. I'm not a religious person. So it doesn't apply to me. Listen, as, I, as I'm getting older, and as I'm seeing the tendency in my own heart to self-righteousness, I am also sensing that the kinds of I don't know what label to put it. Let's the kinds of atheistic secularism that dominates our public life now in the UK is actually cut from the same cloth. Modern secularism is not the answer to religious self-righteousness. In many ways, it's worse. Modern secularists sound even more dogmatic and sure of themselves than Paul did. We're enlightened now. We've grown up and left behind all these fairy tales and this mythical religious nonsense. We don't need anything. All that we need is ourselves. Just today, I'd finished my talk, and just today I came across the story of an atheist professor who wrote these words. Just indulge me um, as I quote this. This lady writes, In college... I absorbed the idea that Christianity was historical curiosity or a blemish on modern civilization, or perhaps both. My college science classes presented Christians as illiterate, anti-intellectuals who, because they didn't embrace Darwinism, threatened the advancement of knowledge. At 31 years old, I was an atheist college professor, and I delighted in thinking of myself that way. I got a kick out of being an unbeliever. It was fun to consider myself superior to the unenlightened, superstitious masses and to make snide comments about Christians. 
That sounds pretty self-righteous to me, does it to you? There was something about the idea of faith that made it stick with me, though. I didn't have faith, I didn't want faith, but I felt compelled to have a good reason why not. I constructed an elaborate analogy for myself, one that I felt gave satisfying explanation of why faith was impossible. I could not believe, no matter how much I might want to, I thought faith was a meaningless word word, that so-called believers were either hypocrites or self-deluded fools and that it was a waste of time to consider any claim that Christians made about the truth. I didn't want to deal with that. Easier by far to read only books by atheists that told me what I wanted to hear, that I was smarter and more intellectually honest and morally superior than those poor deluded Christians. That kind of thinking is in the end no different to the religious brand of self-righteousness that we've been talking about. It is possible, in other words, to be a self-righteous religious person or just as possible to be a self-righteous non-religious person. They're all in the same cage. The issue is, I'm going to trust in me. And they can do it either religiously or non-religiously. And the things I'm hoping to show you will actually apply to both those groups at the same time. We need to get back to the Sermon on the Mount, though. Um, Jesus is preaching this. I told you already that he has three main points or themes. So based on my little mining picture here that I've shown you, here's the big picture of the Sermon on the Mount. Just uh, click these slides for us, Andrew, because I'm not doing it very well. Jesus is point number one. Jesus says, congratulations to the guys in the lower cage. Jesus' point number two is, don't be like the guys in the higher cage. And Jesus' point number three, Jesus concludes, there are only actually two ways to live, so make sure you choose wisely. That's the Sermon on the Mount in a nutshell. I can't tell you how many things I've read to come to that conclusion. You have the benefit of me distilling all that. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Congratulations to the guys in the bottom cage. Don't be like the guys in the top cage. And there's only two ways to live. So make sure you choose rightly. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount over the next few weeks, I hope that overview will strike you powerfully as we go through it. This last idea, only two ways to live, is in many ways the overall theme of the Sermon on the Whole of the sermon as a whole in the end there are only really ever two ways to live there are two cages here and for Jesus life is that simple there are only two options I don't mean that Jesus is being simplistic this wouldn't have lasted 2,000 years if Jesus was being simplistic Actually, when we stop and think about it, Jesus is being outrageously radical. He is saying to everyone who was listening to him then, and to you who are listening to him now, it is either me or nothing. Which, if he is not who he claimed to be, is quite a bold claim, isn't it? He is not giving advice here. He is saying, guys... It's either me or nothing. 
In this sermon, I think Jesus cuts through all the confusion, the fog, the complexity of modern life, and he shows us with crystal clear clarity that this is what life comes down to in the end. Do we trust ourselves or do we trust in the Christ who is God's promised king? They are the options. Let's just try and explore these three themes very briefly. We're not going to go into them in detail because this is our preaching series for the next ten weeks now, but I'm trying to give you the big picture. You get that. So, um, first of all, the introduction. Congratulations. That was point number one. Congratulations to the guys in the bottom cage. I want to suggest to you, if you've got your Bibles open, it'd be really helpful. I want to suggest to you that Jesus' introduction goes from verse 1 to verse 16. This introduction is about the happiness and the impact in the world of those people who are part of Christ's kingdom. Happiness and impact. It begins with a series of words that begin with the word blessed. We call these statements the Beatitudes. You might have heard of them. Uh, We're going to study them in more detail actually over the summer. We're going to take them one by one from mid-July to the end of August early September so we're going to look at the Beatitudes separately over the summer it it is amazing I think how much the word blessed is coming back into fashion on Facebook you often see someone holding a new baby or showing off an engagement ring in some like really artistic photograph or announcing a new job opportunity and then there's just the word blessed my life is happy now This is an exclamation that is as old as human beings are. One writer talking about ancient culture says, those applauded possessed the things that were thought to make for happiness. A lovely bride, excellent children, moral rectitude, wisdom, knowledge, wealth, honour and fame. There was an idea in the Old Testament that good things happen to righteous people. So if someone had good fortune... It was generally felt to be a sign from God that God was pleased with their life. In other words, congratulations, God must really love you. But this new kingdom of Jesus seems to turn all of that upside down and on its head. It isn't material blessing. It isn't a reward for good behavior. Jesus is speaking to the people in the bottom cage But he's not saying, be like this and you'll be in the kingdom. What he's saying is, these are the characteristics of the people who are in my kingdom. The American writer Max Lucado calls this part of the Bible the applause of heaven. Here is God's approval. Here is the secret of true happiness and joy. Here here are people described by Jesus as part of his kingdom who are happy. Jesus says to them, congratulations, guys. And just notice how Jesus subverts common wisdom. One British writer, N.T. Wright, translates this section using the phrase wonderful news. Wonderful news for the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is yours. 
Wonderful news for the mourners. You're going to be comforted. Wonderful news for the meek. You're going to inherit the earth. Wonderful news for people who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. You're going to be satisfied. And so it goes on. In other words, according to Jesus here, the happiest people in all the world are the ones who know that actually they have nothing. How opposite to the way the world thinks that is. Happy are those who are poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungering. Jesus is speaking spiritually here and telling us that those people in this world who know their own spiritual poverty are the happiest people in the world. Jesus is saying to his own disciples, congratulations guys, you know who you are and you know that I love you and have saved you and forgiven you and washed you and I'm changing you. Isn't this brilliant? What this means, dear friends, is that Christianity always begins at the bottom. The way into Christianity is not to succeed at being good, but to know that in our hearts we're not. The gospel of Jesus diagnoses things properly and beautifully. It tells us that we are lost, but loved. It shows us that we're not what we should be, but that God has gone to great lengths to put that right. Even the death of his son for our sakes. The gospel tells us that at heart we're rebels who don't really want God but that he can change our heart and transform us into worshippers. The gospel tells us that we deserve nothing but that this amazing God is graciously willing to give us everything. This is why baptism is such a splendid, splashing, dramatic, joyful picture. We were dead, now we're alive. And notice that Jesus then says to his happy and blessed and humble people, verse 13, now go and live. You are the salt of the earth, guys. You are the light of the world. Now that you know that you are mine, Go and live your lives together in this world by my grace and love and power. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is a kingdom of people who are happy. And a kingdom of people who will have impact. Isn't this what our world needs? Notice too that Jesus said it will cost you a great deal. Why? Because there are always people in the top cage. Verse 11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. If you come to Christ, not everyone will be in favour. Your friends might think you've lost it. The politics of your country might even oppress you. 
remember that even Jesus ended up on a cross for preaching good news. But Jesus says to his friends, think about who you now are. You're in the cage that's going up, guys. That's what he's saying to them. You're in the cage that's going up. You are more broken than you thought you were, and yet more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. You are the happiest people in the world. Even if people kill you, they're only confirming what you know to be true. If you are a Christian this afternoon, and you know these words, because you've read them hundreds of times, don't miss the joy that is here. Because these words are familiar to you. Change the word blessed to congratulations if you have to. This is Jesus saying, congratulations guys. This kingdom is amazing. It is for your joy and health. It is for the world's good. And ultimately it is all for God's glory. What about the content? Point two. We'll we'll be quick. Um, Jesus says number two, don't be like the guys in the top cage. The key verse that makes me come to that conclusion is the last verse that John read to us earlier. Chapter 5, verse 20. Why why does Jesus bring the Pharisees in at this point? Verse 20, I tell you, he's talking to the crowds and to his friends, and he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness is better than those Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What on earth does he mean by that? Jesus is really saying, don't be like those guys. They're they're the guys in the top cage. Don't be like them. I said last week, this is not about quantity. It's about quality. What Jesus is not saying here is, this is an exam to pass. They scored 75, but to get in you need 90, mate. So, unless your righteousness ticks more boxes than theirs does, you can't come in. It's not about quantity. Jesus is looking for a different kind of righteousness altogether. The Pharisees were ticking boxes. What Jesus is looking for is their hearts. They are trusting in themselves to keep the rules. Jesus is saying, you are to trust in me and live by my grace. It's not on my notes, this. I wasn't going to tell this story, but I'll tell it anyway. Because it just came to me and I feel like it. Imagine Valentine's Day. Some of you have heard me tell this story before. Imagine Valentine's Day in the Jones household. You're even laughing because you know the story. And I decide to surprise my wife. And so I go to the flower shop. Florist. Florist. And I buy a dozen red roses. And they're all tied up nicely. And I go to the house, knock on the door. And Jane opens the door. And I say, happy Valentine's Day. Twelve red roses. And she says to me, in that coy way, oh, you shouldn't have. Why? Why? And I say to her, I'm just doing my duty, love. (gasps) I heard someone take a big sharp breath there. (gasps) And she grabs the flowers. She wraps them around the back of my neck and says, go and learn some manners, boy. You... Who gives flowers to their wife and says, I'm just doing my duty. I'm just ticking a box. What does she want? What she wants 
is to know that I delight in her. Not that I'm passing some test that she set. If that's true for her, how much more true is that for, for, for God? We, we, the Pharisees were living their lives like, we're doing our duty. We, I mean, we don't really love God, we're just ticking boxes. What Jesus, Jesus says, if your righteousness doesn't surpass theirs, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because that is not even qualifying as righteousness. It seems to me, in my own life, that the more I try to keep the rules in the sense of earning God's favour, the more I can't do it. But the moment I trust Jesus to accept me, instead of trying to do it on the basis of the rules, somehow it sets me free to keep the rules with his help because I actually then want to. I can't explain it any better than that. As we go through this sermon over the next few weeks, there's the... The, the main content here, don't be like the other guys, goes from chapter 5 and verse 17 right through to chapter 7 and verse 12. That middle section, there are four things that Jesus says under this heading. Don't be like these guys. And they're to do with our attitudes, our desires, our ambitions and our relationships. Let me just briefly say what they are and you can come back to learn more if, if you wish. First of all, uh, people who love rules, box ticking more than Jesus, will be always thinking, what can I get away with? This is another point. We'll put, move it on one. People like, people like the Pharisees are always thinking, where's the loophole? What can I get away with instead of what can I do? That's the difference between the top cage and the bottom cage. Secondly, and Ian will get into that next week. Secondly, people who love rules rather than Jesus tend to want to crave the approval of other people rather than resting in the love of a father. Chapter 6. I'll just give you one example. Verse 1. Jesus says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. We crave the approval of people rather than the approval of our father. That's another contrast. Thirdly, worrying about what we own rather than how we behave. In chapter 6, Jesus touches on two things that are really to do with materialism. Often we are selfish and anxious about our stuff rather than being open-handedly generous like Jesus is. Chapter 6, verse 19 to 34, we'll get through 
investing in treasures in heaven and the whole idea of anxiety big issue in our moral, modern culture and then fourthly and lastly people who love rules more than Jesus will always tend to be superior to other people rather than humbly loving them looking down on it that's what Paul did that's what that professor did the moment we start relying on ourselves it is inevitable that we will begin to look down on other people and we've broken God's law at that point before we've even started obeying all the rest that's why in chapter 7 Jesus says do not judge one of the most misquoted and misunderstood verses in all the Bible what is Jesus saying his people who know grace who are humble who are in the bottom cage are not the kind of people who look down their noses at other people because they know that they only exist by God's grace they have nothing to boast about listen our attitudes our desires our ambitions our relationships are all in need of change and the gospel of Jesus Christ contains the resources to bring about real and lasting change. This is what I need. This is what you need. This is what our society needs. And we're going to look at all of that detail over these next few weeks. Thirdly, Jesus concludes his sermon in chapter 7 and verse 15 with three comparisons. And he, he very clearly says there's only two options. Sorry, verse 13, chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. There are two ways. One is narrow, one is broad. One looks right but isn't. One doesn't look right but is. <laughs> two options. In the next section from verse 15, Jesus said there are bad trees that bear bad fruit, good trees that bear good fruit. And in the last section, verse 24, listen to the words of Jesus. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew. They beat against that house and it fell with a what? A great crash. I won't scare you by clapping into the microphone. What is Jesus saying? There's two ways to live. There's only two options. You're in the bottom cage or the top cage. He couldn't be more clear, could he? Well, there you have an overview then of where we'll be going over the next few weeks. I hope that you find the next few weeks helpful. But let, let me close with a challenge. None of us can really avoid, I don't think, the implications of this teaching of Jesus. And here's the deal. The great test you can apply, even right now, as you hear this in your heart, is, is, is what reaction does this provoke? Which cage am I in? As I hear that gospel engine turn, does it thrill me and encourage me? Or does it offend me? Does it make you recoil 
and want to run away and continue to rely on yourself and your own efforts. Or maybe you think, I could believe this, but all my friends would think I was weird if I did. Or does it make you feel your own need? Does it tell you something about the beauty of Jesus? Does something stir within you wanting to come to him for help and forgiveness and power? Does this help you to see that actually in the end you need Jesus more than you need even friends? In chapter 7, in verse 7, Jesus says an astonishing thing. And he makes this invitation to every single person who was listening that day and is listening now. This is a hard teaching in some ways, but Jesus gives us great encouragement here. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? And then Jesus makes a little backhanded insult. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Friends, there is no excuse. Jesus says there's an open door. He's not asking us to pass a test. He's inviting us to trust him. This God that we worship is not evil or stingy or holding back from us in some way. The kingdom of heaven has come. Christ the King has invaded this broken world and offers himself to you. He invites you to come, to trust him, and to be radically different by his grace. He invites you to ask and seek and knock. Whoever believes in the Son, the Bible says, has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Amen.